that describes learning to live life God's way and enjoy the blessings that God wants you to have. The good life that God has prepared for you. We call it life in the kingdom of God. Kingdom because in your heart, whether you recognize it or not, is a throne and a throne room. And you've spent most of your life sitting on that throne, calling the shots, running the show. There comes a point in life where in desperation probably, you decide you can't do that anymore. God invites you to let His Son sit on the throne of your heart. The moment you do, the kingdom of God comes into your life. Well, from Matthew chapter 5, we see eight principles for living life in the kingdom of God. We're covering the eighth today, so we're going to do a quick review of the first seven. And then I remind you that next week we're going to conclude when I tell you, so what happens when we let Christ rule in our hearts in this world because of what's going on in us? But that's next week. First beatitude was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We attach to vow and the vow attached to the first is this, I admit my failure and turn control over to God. Are you ready to do that? Because if you're not, you will eventually get ready. <laughs> but don't wait once you're ready. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I return to the cross again and again to surrender my life. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I learn to rest in him and become all that I can be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I long for more of God and continue to grow in Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I welcome God's grace into my life, and then I pass it on others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I honor God with my priorities and sharpen my focus on Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I accept God's offer of reconciliation and then seek the same peace with others. Today, the eighth principle. Blessed are those who are persecuted Because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to pledge today the following. I will keep doing the right thing. And wait patiently for my reward. Now by the way. I had to shorten this to fit it on two lines. And so I'm going to give you the fuller expression that's in my notes. I put. I will keep doing the right thing. No matter what and wait patiently for my reward. That no matter what is important. Because sometimes it's easy on Sunday morning, isn't it, to say, I'm going to do the right thing. By golly, soon as I leave here, I'm going to live this way, think this way, act this way, treat people this way. And then you do it that way and things don't go all that well, right? And it's quick you are to turn back. I will keep doing the right thing no matter what and wait patiently 
for my reward. <laughs> Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That, that, like many of the Beatitudes, seems like a bit of a paradox, doesn't it? That's because it is. You ever have somebody say to you, you know, isn't the Bible just full of a bunch of contradictions? Okay. Well, the, the funny thing is, those people are right, but they haven't taken it far enough. The Bible is full of paradoxes because life is full of them. A paradox is two things that seem to be in opposition, seem to contradict, but when considered together, form a greater truth. That's a paradox. Okay? And in that way, the Bible is full of contradictions because guess what? Life is full of contradictions, isn't it? You haven't discovered that yet? Yeah, indeed it is. So how is it then that persecution, which seems like a bad thing, can be a blessing, which would be a good thing? That's the question you should be asking right now. Well, a good illustration of this is found in Acts chapter 5. Think about the early disciples. <laughs> Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We're going to celebrate that time coming up very soon. And when he was arrested, what did the disciples do? They ran for their lives, yeah. They were, they were as cowardly as you are when it came to sticking to your faith, right? And, uh, but then later, <laughs> after Christ died and rose from the dead and after the Holy Spirit had come upon the early apostles they started going out and boldly proclaiming Christ and his resurrection so much so that the Jewish leaders were very frustrated by it because they thought they had silenced the message when they killed Jesus but now it was living even more and they thought how can we control these guys should we kill them then they realized, no, we killed Jesus and that just made the thing grow. But we know these guys are a bunch of cowards. We'll intimidate them. Anybody ever try to intimidate you? Okay, threaten you, right? And get you to back down, even though you knew it was the right thing to move ahead. They were so loud and boisterous, you thought, oh, well, maybe not. Maybe I'm not seeing this correctly or whatever. And they thought that's how we'll deal with them. So they lectured them. Don't you preach anymore the resurrection of Christ. And that, not quite done yet, but jump in here in a minute. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so then just to make their point, they also flogged them, beat them severely. So that that way, you know, in, in case you forgot the threat after you left, every time you went, tried to turn this way and you felt, oh, that hurts. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't want that to happen again. They flogged them, but they actually went out and, just like Beth said, kept preaching the gospel. Here's the text in Acts 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What name was that, by the way? Yeah, the name of Jesus. Day after day, then, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never stopped. I will keep doing the right thing no matter what. 
and wait patiently for my reward. I looked up the word persecution in the dictionary. It says ill treatment caused by the nature and practice of one's faith. It seems like a foreign concept to us as American Christians, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. We're clueless when it comes to persecution unless you're very world conscious. But the truth is that Christians on almost every other continent are very aware of the topic. Here are some facts about Christian persecution. One, Christians are the most persecuted religious group around the world. An average of 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. How many of them you think were in America? That would be zero. Yes, you're exactly right. 180 Christians every month, that's six a day or so, are killed just because of what they believe. Two, according to the U.S. Department of State, in more than 60 countries, Christians face persecution from their governments. In other words, it isn't just people reacting to them or people of varying faiths reacting to them, but it's the actual government that rules in the country surrounding neighbors because of their faith in Christ. Three, one of the worst countries in the world for persecution of Christians is... No. <laughs> Good guess, though. Israel, no. Iran, no. Africa, no. North Korea. Now you're not surprised, yeah. You know that funny-looking guy with the real round face? With, with the... I swear, he's not related to me. With the exception of four official state-controlled churches in Pyongyang, Christians in North Korea face the risk of detention in prison camps, severe torture, and in some cases, execution simply for practicing their religious beliefs. North Koreans suspected of having contact with South Korean or other foreign missionaries in China and those caught in possession of a Bible have often been known to be executed. Four, in 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecution, Christians are also being persecuted by Islamic extremists. Now, let me stop to say, when I talk to Christians, and they seem to take pride in this, there seems to be this reaction where people feel justified about, yeah, we'd like to persecute them back, blow them up. <laughs> I want you to know that's the opposite of the response that Christ has taught us, right? If you know, first of all, people that persecute people just because of their faith are sick, you ought to pray for them. They're their own worst enemies. They're hurting themselves worse than they're hurting the people they're trying to persecute. The proper Christian response is to pray for such people. You do recall Jesus said that, right? Pray for your enemies. Bless them and do good. That's exactly right. 
Five, Christians face persecution even in countries with a large Christian population. So it's not just countries that are largely a different religion. For instance, in Colombia, Christian political rebels specifically target leaders because many people have left the rebel groups after coming to Christ. In other words, people that are thinking that revolt is the answer to all their problems stop thinking that way when they come to Christ and the leaders of the revolts don't like it. Persecution. It's happening around the world right now. And in some ways it touches even people in America. In some form, suffering comes to believers. What does the Bible teach about the topic that would make us think that those who are persecuted because of righteousness, which simply means because of doing the right thing. Why is that a blessing? First, suffering is inevitable. What's inevitable mean? Can't miss it, unavoidable, not an option. (laughs) Suffering is part of what you signed up for, for those who aren't, home yet every time you suffer for being a christian it's a marvelous reminder that this isn't your home people get harsh treatment when they travel away from home anybody here ever been to paris okay when you're in paris and you're right well you probably got a pass Ted, since you're British, but they treat Americans like crap because, well, I'm not exactly sure why. It's funny because, because of the fact that the, I guess they, they think that Americans look down their nose at, at uh, French people, and so they're very harsh and unkind and inhospitable. But all you have to do is cross the border over into Belgium, where Daniel that was here recently came. They like worship Americans. Because twice during World War II, the American forces set them free, including the last one in the Battle of the Bulge, for those of you who are into history. They have bigger museums to the U.S. military in Belgium than they do in the United States. <laughs> okay, just a matter of perspective, I guess. But you might get rough treatment if you... Now, the problem is that most Americans go, well, I'm an American. I deserve to be treated better than that. How come they can't learn to speak English? You know, that kind of thing. And so no wonder they persecute us, right? And, and the thing is, the proper approach is to say, well, of course, this isn't my home. I need to remember, I'm just a visitor here. I need to treat them with respect no matter how they treat me. But that's not our instinctive response. Well, the same thing is true about us as believers. This world, not our home. (laughs) I went to a seminar at the uh, uh, Iron Sharpens Iron yesterday on how to bring God to the workplace. The, the, The speaker, when he was introduced, was intriguing to me. So I thought, well, I'll go to that one, see what he has to say. And what he had to say was really good. Except for most of the people in the audience didn't get it because when it came time for question answer, all the things they were saying were, huh, people, people swear and use the name of Jesus in vain at my work. How do I get them to stop it? <laughs> That's not the point. Your presence will stop it. 
not your activity. If you honor Christ, it will impact the environment in which you find yourself. Oh, my boss is a creep, and he treats us like garbage. Be a better employer, employee. Oh, <laughs> that's a different approach, isn't it? For suffering should not catch us by surprise. We should be aware this isn't our home. This isn't where we belong. This isn't our native air or soil. <laughs> We're away from home for a little while. Our hearts long to go home. God's not finished with us here yet. We're here. But we should not be fooled into thinking this is where we belong. We don't. And like a round peg in a square hole, sometimes life gets difficult. I love the description of the author of Hebrews when he talks about several remarkable people from the Old Testament, men and women of faith. He says, what is it that kept these people going? How could they keep serving God even though people were responding to them harshly? And he gives this line. He says, they were looking for a city that was yet to come. In other words, when they came into a city and the city mistreated them, they said, well, of course, this isn't our hometown. Our hometown is in heaven. So, for the suffering is inevitable, we're not home yet. Secondly, suffering isn't limited to those who deserve it. Remember back in Job's day, at least Job's friends, and I think the prevailing sociological concept was that if your life was going well, you must be pretty righteous. You know, People still say that today. I'll occasionally have people say to me, and if I have time for an argument, I'll stop and argue with them, and they'll say, oh, good day today. Things are going well. I must be doing something right. When I want to argue, I'll go, I'll go like, no, God must be really gracious. <laughs> That's what I think. Because frankly, I don't want what I got coming. I don't know about you. okay? Because I got coming hell and death <laughs> and all that goes along with it. I'm glad Christ took that for me. I'm glad every day I get grace. I get what I don't deserve. Don't know about you. But, if I'm honest, I've got to notice that in this world, sometimes good people suffer. All depending on how you use that term. I one time was watching Larry King, before he just did like info commercials about like health products. He used to have a talk show, and they used to have... Um, discussions on their panel discussions that were really quite hilarious particularly if they were on areas that are my expertise in theology and one night they were going to have one they were having one why do good people suffer okay and, and so on the panel i look at the panel, they have a rabbi they have a priest they have some uh, new age mystical spiritual leader and they they're going to have jerry falwell well I'm not a big Jerry Falwell fan, but he is a Christian. Uh, uh, but Jerry Falwell's ill. He can't come. So they have uh, John MacArthur, who, who I also don't always see eye to eye with, but he's better than Jerry Falwell. And so <laughs> John MacArthur's on there. So I'm going to listen and see what they have to say. 
And it was so awesome. John MacArthur was so right on. They went around the group. And I, I'm still not even sure what the priest was trying to say, what the rabbi was trying to say, because I was so confused after they got done. Why do bad things happen to good people? They get to John MacArthur, and they go like, oh, well, John, we only have a few seconds left before the commercial, but why do bad things happen to good people? He says, simple, I can answer in a few seconds. There are no good people. <laughs> they went, while Larry King crossed his eyes. <laughs> That's exactly right. We don't want women because there are no good people. Okay? There are people who've been graced by God, and then there are people who recognize how much grace they've received from God and enjoy it and walk in it and share it with other people. And there are other people who just don't have a clue that when they wake up in the morning and they think it's their right to take the next breath, that's God giving you air to breathe. When did you sign up for that? When did you earn that? When did you... No, that's not the way it works. But sometimes, you may do the right thing and get the wrong response. You may do the right thing and suffer for doing the right thing. We read in the passage earlier, from Peter, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good, implied that you can, than for doing evil. Now, I loved it. Did you catch that in the passage where he's going, now, if you suffer because you're a bonehead or because you did something sinful, well, you deserve to suffer. And he mentioned some suffering, right? If you're a murderer, well, then expect to go to jail. If you're a thief... <laughs> Expect to get in trouble for that. And then he goes on, or even a meddler. Did anybody catch that? Or even if you stick your nose in where it doesn't belong. Even if you, how many of you have ever done this by a show of hands, okay? Opened your mouth when you should have shut up. <laughs> okay? He goes like, you may suffer. Then you just go, huh, had that coming. All right? But he said, if during one of those moments where you suffer even though you know in your heart your motives were right and you did the right thing, then, he says, rejoice. This was one of the guys who went away after getting beaten, by the way, who wrote this and said they rejoiced for being counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Rejoice because of how God's going to use it. Third, Suffering is a price worth paying for doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is its own reward. Even if you never received a reward, just the confidence of knowing, I just did the right thing. Somebody needed to say it. Somebody needed to do it. Somebody needed to make the first sacrifice. I did it. I feel good about myself. Suffering, a price worth paying for doing the right thing. Now, when people don't respond well when we do the right thing, or when the environment in which we live revolts against our attempts to do the right thing, 
We may feel sorry for ourselves, and we may feel like doing this that you've all felt like doing. You've been doing the right thing, and the right thing, and the right thing, and the right thing, and then you said, I, starts with Q as four-letter word, quit, I quit, thank you, Dad. I quit. And to this, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Do not quit. The word good here needs some interpretation, interestingly enough, because you don't think it does. But it doesn't mean what it means in modern English. In modern English, good basically means mediocre, right? Superior, excellent, very good, good, fair, poor, it sucks. Something, I don't know what's down here. Bad, really bad. I don't know, I think I'm going to die. Right? And good's just kind of in between. But in the New Testament, the word good always means that which could only have come from God. Remember, one time Jesus had somebody come to him and say, he was trying to smooth him, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, nobody's good except God. (laughs) Are you calling me God? Because if you are, let's have the further discussion. But if not, you're just trying to butter me up. James chapter 1, James says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variance, no changing, no shifting like shadows. Okay? He's faithful. He constantly gives into our lives. That's what it means to be good. So when we say do good, we're saying do the God thing. Do what God would have you to do. And says uh, Jesus here, If you are doing what God has called you to do, don't wear out. Don't get tired. Don't be tempted to give up. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. When will you reap the harvest, according to Paul? At the proper time. How many of you ever noticed God has a different perspective on time than you do? Yeah, he's not caught in time and space like we are. (laughs) He said things like, behold, I come soon. That was 2,000 years ago. Okay, so to give you an idea on God's perception on time and ours sometimes different, but the proper time for God is when he ordains it to be the proper time. But know this, the certainty is proper time's coming. It's coming if you keep doing what's good. But think about what we're tempted to do. What if tomorrow's the day of the harvest and I quit today? Yeah, that's what you don't want to do. Four, redemptive suffering marks you as a citizen of the kingdom of God. By redemptive suffering, I mean this. God is in the redemption business. The theme of the Bible 
entirely is the redemption of man from sin. Genesis to Revelation, the unfolding whole of the picture, God's plan to redeem mankind. At the heart, at the focus, at the center of this redemptive plan, the work of the cross. And the cross is not a piece of jewelry. We really need to be shaken on this. It is not a pristine, lit up piece of finely hewn wood hanging at the front of a church. The cross was the most evil and awful form of execution the world has ever known. It, by its very nature, represents suffering. It was designed to inflict suffering. It wasn't like a lethal injection execution, trying to do it the most humane way. It was to shame the one hanging on the cross as much as it was to kill the one on the cross. Redemption. Says Christ, I invite you to share in my sufferings. So, know this. I don't promise to spare you from any suffering, says Jesus. But this I promise. In me, everything you suffer, I will use for my kingdom, my glory, and my great redemptive plan. That's a pretty awesome promise, isn't it? In fact, that would be a bigger promise than him saying to us, listen, while you're down here on earth, I got you covered. No pain, no problems, no difficulties. No struggles. You belong to me. Life will be smooth as can be. He didn't say that, by the way. But better than that, he says, when you suffer, I will take it. I will use it for my glory and your good, or I'm not God. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he says to them, think about it this way. If the world hates you, How many of you have ever had at least one day where you were sure the world hated you? (laughs) Okay. I was sure of it this morning when I woke up and went, somebody stole an hour last night. (laughs) If the world hates you, keep in mind, says Jesus, it hated me first. Why does the world hate you? You belong to Jesus. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Every time you suffer, particularly persecution, it marks you as belonging to Jesus and being a citizen of his kingdom. Finally, such suffering, redemptive suffering that is, will be, will be rewarded. God does not forget. God sees every act, when it was done, in secret or in open, why it was done, for the right motives or the wrong motives, and he always rewards every act done in his love and grace, even if it appeared to fail. How many of you ever honestly, in Christ, tried desperately to help somebody? 
and it didn't seem to help. <laughs> Painful, isn't it? But Christ promises it won't be wasted. He'll take it. He'll use it for his glory. Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 2. I am he who searches hearts and minds. <laughs> that is, I know not just what you do, but why you did it. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. You know what a deed is? It's what you do. <laughs> okay. I will repay each of you according to what you do. Now this happens to be the only beatitude that Jesus adds his own commentary to, so I'm not going to skip it. Verses 11 to 12, he says, Yes, blessed are you when people insult you. By the way, one of the greatest things that can happen is when people insult me. I don't always think about it that way. I don't always react to it that way. But every time I'm insulted, I'm reminded that part of my pride is still alive. Because it's impossible, and there's still a pride problem, to be insulted. Otherwise, it just goes right by you. Okay? But every time I am insulted, I go like, huh, I wonder who's sitting on the throne of my life <laughs> that I just got so embarrassed by their comments. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Ever had that happen? I would invite you to be a pastor for one week. <laughs> if ever a week passes that I don't hear some bad rumor about me, that I used to when I was in my 20s chase down and try to correct, <laughs> and now I just go, oh, that's pretty funny. Wait till heaven. They'll see. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wish I could sing this song. But I'm not that good a singer. And I'm not as pretty as the lady who sings it. But I think this song may have the most awesome real lyrics of any song I've ever heard. And let's just be really clear. Most songs don't. They're kind of light and fluffy. And if they're country western, I don't even know how to explain that. But anyhow, this is a song by Laura Story. It has so much theology in it, it just holds me. It's called Blessings. Now, it sounds like a happy, upbeat song, doesn't it? This is not a happy, upbeat song. She writes, We pray for blessings. We pray for peace for comfort for our families, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering, while all the while you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? And what if your healing comes through tears. And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are really your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. 
And as if every promise from your word were not enough, (laughs) while all the while you hear each desperate plea as a reminder that this is not, this is not our home. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights or what it takes to know that you're near. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is simply the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say they get to go to the kingdom. He doesn't say they'll be granted entrance into the kingdom. He said they will possess the kingdom. Implied there is, you don't just get in and you have to stand over there because you're not the king, but the king is going to share with you all that the kingdom affords. It's a promise for those who have suffered. It's a promise for the persecuted. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice today in a sad thought. Life is hard, but you are good. Even when life is not good, or comfortable, or easy, or working the way we would like it to, you, O God, are good, and have good things in store for us. Help us to not become weary in doing good, but to keep our eyes on the Savior who suffered in our place, for our redemption. In Jesus' name.